Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Thursday, March 12th at 10.30 a.m. And now more than ever, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz from the New York Times. Good morning. Paige Winfield-Cunningham of the Washington Post. Hi, Julie. And Kimberly Leonard, who has a new job. Congratulations. And will now be covering health policy for Business Insider. Hi. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. A note about our schedule. Next week, we will have a special episode marking the 10th anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. After that, we're not sure. We're going to start working from home, which will make the podcast difficult, although probably not impossible to produce. I hope we will be back with our regular health news soon. Uh, But obviously, the big health news of the week is still the coronavirus, COVID-19. If last week was the week Washington took serious notice, this week is the week for getting some up-close and personal experience. We now have more than half a dozen members of the House and Senate self-quarantining because they were exposed to someone who tested positive. Uh, People who'd been complaining it was all a hoax are kind of sitting up and taking notice now that Tom Hanks has been diagnosed and the NBA has postponed its entire season. Uh, Just before we sat down, the White House and Congress are banning the public from the the office buildings and from the White House. Um, how much longer is Congress actually going to be able to meet here? I wrote a story this week about Congress itself because if you listen to what the CDC guidance is, we know that people over 65 are at the highest risk of having serious illness or even dying of this virus. And if you look at the demographics of who's in Congress, that's who it is. You know, 48 of 100 senators are older than 65. More than 150 members of the House are older than 65. Uh, There are plenty of them. We don't know what their health history is, but there are plenty that we do. There are members of Congress who are older, who have been treated for cancer, who have been treated for heart disease, who have been treated for diabetes. These are people that are at really high risk if they get the disease. This is, I mean, this is not just a theoretical risk. This is an actual risk to a lot of these people. But when my colleague Nick Fandos interviewed a number of senators, none of them seemed particularly concerned about it yet. And Nancy Pelosi, according to several people who were in a closed-door meeting with the Democratic House members basically told other members of Congress, you know, we're the captains of the ship. We should be the last to leave. There does not seem to be any energy from the Senate or House leadership to think about what might happen if the disease starts to spread among their ranks. We now have at least one Senate aide who has been diagnosed. Uh, Again, there are these uh, couple of legislators who were exposed, uh, many of them at the um, Conservative Political Action Committee conference. Um, And those people are self-quarantining, but uh, it doesn't seem like Congress is making any uh, provisions for being able to vote remotely or to conduct its business in any way other than the way it normally does, which is in person and which often involves members flying back and forth between their home districts where they see a lot of constituents and their Washington offices. Yeah, this issue of, of voting remotely came up after 9-11 um, when, you know, Congress was was out, but really only for, for a day or two. Um, but it was an issue that all the planes were grounded. People who weren't already here couldn't get here. Um, it was – and yet Congress at this point – I guess you might have to change the constitution for them to vote remotely, right? Or would it, would it just be a law? 
That's a good question. We'll have to to ask. I remember it being talked about, though, and it's a big deal. The Congress really does not have – I mean, there is a provision to basically evacuate the entire Congress outside of Washington in the case of one would assume sort of an external attack from a human enemy. Um, But that's not what this is. So, you know, taking them all to an underground bunker in the West Virginia mountains is not going to solve the current problem that they face. And I think part of what's happening is political, which is that they are trying to prevent the public from becoming overly panicked about this. And so they don't want to seem like they are overly alarmed or like they're being selfish and trying to protect themselves in a way that other people are not able to. I think that's what Nancy Pelosi is trying to communicate when she says we're the captains of the ship. You know, we have to be brave. We have to take special risks because we're doing this important work. But I think on the other hand, uh, you know, part of leadership potentially is modeling the kind of behavior that we want to see from everyone. And I know we're going to talk more about social distancing, but public health experts have really been saying that what all of us who are able to do ought to do is to try to not gather in large rooms and shake a lot of hands. Um, And it's kind of like the only thing that we can do right now, because obviously, uh, uh, contrary to what the president has said, a vaccine is not going to be available for at least a year and a half and there's no treatment and there's not a lot of testing. So I think everyone's kind of focused on this social distancing idea because if we're, we're sort of trying to take action against the, the virus, um, all we can really do is cancel mass gatherings. And I think that's why you've seen a lot of you know governments and businesses and schools take those steps because everybody wants to feel like they're doing something now. Um, so it's, you know, but but our hands are sort of tied in a lot of ways um, until these tests become more available um, and until we get kind of more clear guidance or a better uh, or a better outlook on, you know, what is actually the transmissibility of the virus? What is the fatality rate? All of those things. I think going back to Congress, one thing this has highlighted is, you know, in a time like this with a pandemic, Congress can only do so much. I mean, they really rely on the executive and on on the president to work with them to kind of to to set the tone. Um, You know, and you saw the president, uh, you know, he's obviously had lots of struggles with that, well-documented and said many conflicting things about the virus, but... Including um, in a prepared speech. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, but that has sort of highlighted some of his deficiencies as a leader in that you need to have a clear, consistent message coming out of the administration and sort of in that vacuum, you've gotten different messages from from even members of Congress to where there's not a clear consensus over, you know, what are we telling the American people? What is the guidance that we're giving to people? And and this stuff is not easy. I mean, I've been listening to a lot of debates about whether or not to close schools. And obviously, you know, universities are going online, which makes sense because it's spring break time and they're terrified about people, you know, fanning out, going on spring break and then coming back and exposing the, the entire, you know, university um, to, to, to this virus. But the issue with, um, you know, elementary and junior high and high schools is who's going to take care of the kids. And if the parents have to go to work, are the kids going to be taken care of by the grandparents who are at higher risk? Um, on the other hand, kids who don't seem to be very much affected by this are vectors. <laughs> That's, you know, the kids pick it up from each other at school and they take it home to the rest of the family. So, I mean, there's there are a lot of public health sort of give and take here. And I think that's part of the, the difficulty is that, one, we clearly as a population have a very not good uh, understanding of public health. I 
tweeted yesterday that there are actually graduate programs in public health. These things have been tested over many years. This is not the first public health crisis that we have ever seen. Um, but people see this and think, oh, well, that's really dumb. Mm-hmm. There's also huge economic consequences to all of this. You know, when we talk about the social distancing, you know, I think a lot of us who are journalists do have the luxury of being able to work from home at least some of the time because mostly what we need is a telephone and a computer. But if you work in a service industry, if you're a nurse caring for people in the hospital, um, if you have a lot of kinds of jobs where you have to show up in person in order to do your work, you, first of all, are not easily able to follow the guidelines to work from home. You may not have paid sick leave that will allow you to leave even if you are ill. And that, of course, increases the likelihood that you're going to spread a disease to other people. But also, you know, it really does complicate these questions about closing schools because it tends to be the poorest and most vulnerable citizens who work in the kinds of service jobs where they can't work from home. And if their children are being kept home from school, who's going to watch their children when they're at work? There's also, I mean, you've seen a huge range of predictions from experts as to how widespread this is going to be. Um, and I think it is important to keep in mind through all of this that, um, you know, this is, you know, deadlier than the seasonal flu. We saw uh, Fauci say that yesterday to, to Congress. Um, at the same time, um, you know, still we're talking about mainly a risk to people over age 60, 65. Um, I think that 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 they're thinking the uh, outside of Wuhan, China, the fatality rate is going to be somewhere between 0.5 and 1.5 percent. Um, and then, of which course, is a, you, which is more than 10 times as much as the seasonal, as the flu, seasonal flu, which kills right. a lot of people. Every, I mean, the president's right. right about that. A lot of people do die from the flu and hospitals get overwhelmed right. during flu season by people who are very sick from the flu. But the transmissibility has been lower than some other flu outbreaks we've seen. I think they're saying between the reproductive, the reproductive rate, they're saying is between two and three, meaning that each person, that's the average number of people that they infect. Um, and so, um, you know, we're so we're seeing like widespread transmission. So so basically, we're, you know, experts are trying to figure out what are these numbers, because that's going to sort of affect, you know, the total number of infections in the U.S. and then the fatalities. So we're, you know, we're seeing people, these experts project deaths anywhere from in the tens of thousands to even we saw that Congress's doctor speak to members yesterday predicting that there could be millions of fatalities. So it's all kind of like all, all over the place at this point. I think that reflects the fact that this is a fluid situation and something that epidemiologists are still trying to kind of wrap their heads around in trying to figure out how the virus spreads um, and just kind of how it behaves. And so obviously, let's go back to what Congress might or might not do. The president is asking for um, mostly things that would benefit businesses. Marco, as you point out correctly. I mean, you know, everybody sheltering in place basically for for weeks on end is not going to be good for the economy. So the president is worried about the travel industry, about the airlines, about the cruise ship industries, um, about there's a there's a separate oil price war going on and he wants a payroll tax um, holiday. The Democrats are using this to point out that as you also you said, Margot, people don't have a lot of people don't have sick leave. Um, there are a lot of people now in the gig economy that you know a payroll tax holiday isn't going to help because they're not on a payroll. Um, so they want to do sort of other other types of relief in a normal environment. They would do both. <laughs> do you think that's what's going to happen? And that's what makes it harder in terms of thinking about whether they'll take a longer break or not, because to do some of these different policies, they really do need Congress um, you know, there to do them. You can't just go through the executive branch. So that makes it a lot harder. And they're scheduled um, I, for their own spring break. Right, right. That's coming up uh, 
couple of weeks, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's the issue. You know, the continuing issue is, is Congress going to be there? And it seems like there is real disagreement, not just between Democrats and Republicans in Congress, but also between Congress and the White House. The White House seems really focused on the idea of uh, suspending payroll taxes, and it doesn't even seem like Republicans in Congress are particularly interested in that idea. Um, just last night, I think it was either late last night or early this morning, um, the Democrats in the House dropped their bill where they were uh, suggesting a lot of fiscal stimulus suggestions. And it's a pretty ambitious package, very expensive, a lot of spending and, you know, a lot of things in that package that probably are not going to please Republicans. So it does seem like even though people understand the urgency of a situation and there is things are moving faster in Congress than they do in the ordinary course of things, it does seem like there's quite a lot that probably does need to get hammered out because the different parties are not agreeing. And you have seen like Democrats also seize this as an opportunity to really hammer the administration. And it may be in some ways that's fair and in other ways maybe it's not. But, you know, they really sort of made this issue of vaccine affordability a big thing and kind of threatened to like hamstring the, you know, spending package that was passed last week. Um, and some of those fights have kind of obscured, um, you know, the the reality. I mean, in a pandemic situation like this, uh, Health and Human Services does have an authority to work with pharmaceutical companies in trying to develop a vaccine, um, in trying to make sure that diagnostic tests are developed. Um, and typically, you know, once a vaccine is developed, and again, that's, you know, many months down the road, um, but the government would typically buy that vaccine from the pharmaceutical companies and then distribute it to people for free. That's what we saw happen back in 2009. Um, so in some ways, there have been, you know, some of these fights have been real and some of the fights have been a little bit less real um, because I think Democrats see this as a just a really, you know, an opportunity to kind of highlight what they see as Trump's biggest weaknesses, which is showing a, a really strong executive leadership in a circumstance like this. So apparently there are still a lot of big issues with testing. I mean, even if there are enough tests, there's apparently not enough lab capacity to process all the tests. Um, and I think that there's been, you know, talk of a reagent shortage. So you may be able to get the sample from the from the patients, but then you can't actually process the test. So that that's one big issue. But the president um, had in the uh, representatives from the insurance companies uh, earlier this weekend, and they all at least we were told promised that they are that they would not that they would cover the tests um and there was an IRS ruling that made sure that um self-insured plans could you know that you could have that sort of pre-deductible but that it's not just the test that uh expose people to expenses and make them worry about going and getting tested right Right. It's the, well, the treatment and everything else that would come with it. It's, it's, as far as I can tell, they haven't agreed to cover the treatment. Is that right? I think some insurance companies did, and I don't remember which ones. That they, they each said something a little bit different. I think most of them said they would waive the copay for the test, and then others said that they would remove some cost sharing if the treatment, if there was medically recommended treatment that was necessita- necessitated by the coronavirus. But they haven't, they haven't all said that across the board. Um, but to Julie's point, you know, this is this issue of testing is maybe the area where we've seen the most conflicting and mixed messaging from the administration compared to what 
that's really happening. I mean, we saw, I think it was Pence or Fauci on Sunday show saying that by the end of this week, 4 million tests were going to be made available. I, I called up the community health centers on Monday to ask them because they're, you know, they work with the commercial labs, Quest Lab and um, LabCorp, um, and to, to ask them, uh, you know, are they, are, are their doctors able to start ordering tests? And they said they don't have the capacity for that yet. And they've been checking in with their members. That was as of Monday. So maybe things have changed a little bit. Um, but the rollout has certainly been much, much slower than sort of what we've consistently been hearing from Pen- the promises we've been hearing from Pence and others. And as a practical matter, you know, if you think that you have the coronavirus and you want to get tested, uh, at least now probably you have to go to an emergency room. Um, you know, you're going to be assessed in the emergency room. You're going to get the test. Uh, so even if it turns out that you don't have the virus, um, you may be on the hook for an emergency room visit. I mean, I think that there are other costs that are associated with both having this illness and uh, finding out whether you have it or not that, you know, are going to potentially be costly for people. And I think it's not easy for insurance companies to just say, like, oh, we will waive all of our cost sharing for any reason because, I think that really gets at the basic structure of how these plans are designed and how they're priced. You know, in general, we have plans that have cost sharing and they have deductibles built into them. And I think we're really seeing the difference between the sort of how we think about that structure in the face of a public health emergency compared to how we think about it in the normal day to day when people are facing cost sharing to treat their diabetes or to treat their influenza or, you know, other kinds of more common maladies. Well, cost sharing is supposed to deter unnecessary care. That's the idea that you, they, you know, you have cost sharing. And there didn't used to be cost sharing for emergency rooms. That's just the last 20 years or so. It's like, no, you really shouldn't. You should think hard before going to the ER. Maybe you should go to urgent care. Maybe you should just call your doctor. Um, But now we have this public health crisis where you don't want necessarily cost sharing to be a deterrent for people to go get tested. There was a former colleague of mine last night was, uh, was on Twitter saying that he'd been tested a week ago and the test result hadn't come back yet. And somebody commented that, well, you know, you'd be, there's no treatment, so you'd be doing the same thing for him. And, and my thought was, well, it's not, it's not about him anymore. It's about if he's positive, then you need to be tracing his contacts. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's the part that's sort of not happening here is it, it's, you know, it's for most people, you know, particularly younger people, it's, it is, it's a mild illness, but you want to know who they might have infected. I think right. that's, that's sort of the big issue here. I, I think also this has really highlighted just the basic differences between the U.S. healthcare system and healthcare systems in other countries. Like you look at South Korea and their recent successes in seeming to contain the virus and but they have a much more extensive government run healthcare plan that's available to everyone than the US does. Um, in fact, some have argued I think that their plan is that it's kind of like overly generous. The providers actually I mean that actually, you know, that it could encourage waste because people can get like any service without any copay. So that's sort of like another issue. But in a time like this, you don't have those deterrents to trying to get tested and getting care, which can actually be a really good thing at a moment when you want to make sure that everybody's getting tested that needs to get tested. And that's not necessarily happening here. I will say at this moment, I feel like uh, you're talking about the Democrats making hay of uh, certain aspects of this. I do think that this discussion about whether or not you're going to have to pay a copayment for a coronavirus test, like it is important and it will affect people. But right now, the real limiting factor is there just aren't enough tests. I mean, I think the problem is there are a lot of people who 
are trying to get tested, who want to get tested, who would pay a little money to get tested, and they just are not able to get the test. So I think that is like the first barrier. Yeah, and I think I think that, I think the problem right now, and this is, is I finally figured out this is sort of the difference. There are plenty of tests. There is not the capacity to run the tests. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. The bottleneck is not the actual testing. It's the actual getting the test completed and results back to people. That's where it seems to all be sort of backed up right now. But mm-hmm. it's, you know, obviously there will be much more to come. Well, speaking of Democrats trying to use this to uh, uh, to, to press ahead, they've been suggesting that, uh, as as we've been talking about, uh, this points up some pretty big holes in the U.S. health care system, particularly for people without insurance, but also for people with insurance who are afraid to use their insurance because their deductibles are so high. Um, we also learned this week that how House Speaker Pelosi, in conjunction with the 10th anniversary of the Affordable Care Act, which comes later this month, is going to have a House vote on an ACA 2.0. Um, obviously, the Republican Senate isn't going to take this up. So so why would Pelosi want to want to do it anyway? Well, she knows politically that uh, defending the Affordable Care Act, its protections for people with pre-existing conditions and promising to lower health care costs all are very popular with voters. And, um, you know, I've been saying for a while now, if she had her way, she would tell Democrats, please don't fight over Medicare for all public option, fight over, you know, defending the affordable, you know, talk about how you're going to defend the Affordable Care Act, particularly in in light of, you know, President Trump's attacks and obviously that the case is going again before the Supreme Court regarding whether, you know, the Affordable Care Act will get wiped away completely. Um, And it's, it's interesting that they're introducing this again because they introduced a similar bill last year. It didn't go anywhere, but they could pass it in the House to show the contrast with the president. Um, And it is interesting that it doesn't have a public option, um, apparently. I mean, I guess we'll see in the final package, but my understanding is that it's not there. Um, So the package that she's introduced wouldn't have industry opposition. They would love to see a bill where the federal government inserts a lot more funding into the Affordable so Care it's, Act. It's basically like what California did, right? It's, it's exactly. increasing the subsidies, yeah. um, Other, although California put the yeah. mandate back. Which... Right. Leaving out leaving out the extending coverage for people who are living in the state illegally, um, it's pretty much very similar to that. It's exactly what the industry would like to see because as far as you know, individuals who are enrolled in these ACA plans, they would be paying less for their health care. But that's through the government subsidizing more. And the industry doesn't want to see caps on how much, you know, they can make. And so that's why they would get behind this and it would pass pretty easily. I think, you know, we've talked about this before, but there is a way in which the entire Democratic presidential field is sort of to the left of where uh, the center of the party really is. You know, we we, uh, are as guilty of this as anyone, but I feel like there's been a lot of labeling of Joe Biden's plan, for example, as like the moderate plan. But, you know, it's it's so not, (laughs) you know, it's a pretty expansive plan. It would create this. We don't know all the details, but it would be create this new government insurance uh, system would be run by the government. Lots of people would get it. It would replace Medicaid, basically, in certain states with this public plan. That is a pretty far-reaching, ambitious plan that's very much, you know, on the kind of fringes of where the debate was when the Affordable Care Act passed. I think Nancy Pelosi is kind of trying to show us, like, here's where the party is. You know, this is something that all Democrats can get behind, is something a little bit more limited, that is looking at the Affordable Care Act, identifying some places where Democrats think it hasn't gone far enough or where it's not working, fixing those problems, but not sort of building some brand new structure. And and giving a vote to her, you know, her Democrats, the Democrats, we say this every time, who made her the speaker, who gave her the majority, were the Democrats who beat 
Republicans in those swing districts whose districts are not for Medicare for all. Um, and the, it gives them sort of something to vote for and then go home and say, you know, yes, I want to improve health care. And the Republicans want to eliminate the Affordable Care Act and, and draw that distinction. In I don't the think the bill will reinstitute the individual mandate. No, right? it will you not. said that. So, yeah. So it just goes <laughs> to show as well, you know, how, you know, they understand the politics of this. And, you know, we've talked about this so much, but the affordability for people who make above 400 percent of the federal poverty level is really, really hard. And many people are turning to plans that, you know, don't cover pre-existing conditions that, um, you know, limit, um, you know, that, that end up having massive out-of-pocket costs or just going uninsured because they're priced out of the market. So this bill would address that um, by by adding more federal funding to to premiums. It does make it feel like a lot of the debate that we've heard on the campaign trail has been not fake, but like just in, on kind of another planet a little bit because, you know, it's been really interesting looking at the exit polling from the recent primaries and many, a majority of the Democratic primary voters actually express support for something that's more like what Bernie Sanders wants. They want like single payer, at least depending on the way it's described to them, but then they're tending to vote for Biden and and then you have a whole different approach that we just talked about on the Hill. And so there's this whole spectrum and, you know, what the candidates are kind of drawn to debate on the campaign trail is pretty far removed from what Democrats on Capitol Hill actually want to sign on to. This will also continue. There was there was some uh, non-coronavirus nerdy health news this week. Um, the Department of Health and Human Services issued long-awaited rules on making electronic health records interoperable. Say As some, that 10 times fast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would just say I have been covering this for a long, long time. So I will say that interoperability, meaning the ability of all those computer things your doctor types into instead of looking at you while you're in the office, uh, mm-hmm. has been the goal since the George W. Bush administration, but it has yet to come to pass. I know that I personally have a half a dozen doctors with different electronic health record portals that can't communicate with each other, or if they can communicate, the information is hopelessly out of date. Um, So this rule will, when it takes effect, uh, let people, in theory, carry their medical records around with them on their smartphones. Uh, What could go wrong, right? (laughs) This discussion always reminds me of when our colleague Sarah Cliff tweeted once that the most efficient way to move her medical records from her doctor to her specialist was by walking a floppy disk from one office to the other. Good illustration of the failure of of these records to integrate with each other. Oh, yeah. I went to a new doctor who was on the same record as a doctor I had not seen in seven years. And it's like, are you still on it? You know, sort of X, Y, Z. Like, what are you talking about? And then I at least remembered it's like, oh, yeah, it's the same portal. But it's like, that is so out of date. (laughs) So this basically would require, um, the way I understand it, and I haven't actually read the rule itself, but um, these electronic medical record companies, if a patient comes to them and wants to use a particular app to store their medical information, they basically have to work with that consumer and they have to provide it in a certain format. And the rule kind of lays out the parameters for how that has to be done. And the idea is that patients are going to be able to um, carry all of their medical records in this app, um, which, I mean, 
basically at this, you know, the, the way things are right now, a patient could, in theory, go to all of their medical providers, get their records, and sort of manually input all of them onto their phone. There have been concerns about HIPAA, and so the idea that when patients get their medical records on their phone, it wouldn't be protected by HIPAA. But advocates for these changes have made the point that that could patients could already do that at this point. Not that they do, because think of the amount of like, right. well, work patients, and effort. Patients aren't technically covered by the confidentiality restrictions of HIPAA, which is interesting. Um, it was made to make sure that your medical providers don't, in you know, incorrectly share your medical information. You can do whatever you want with your medical information, right? Um, I've, I know, rightly so. Yeah, yes, <laughs> it's, your, it's your medical information. Well, uh, they needed to pass HIPAA to make that clear. I mean, before yeah. HIPAA, you did you the patient did not have the rights to your medical records. They belong to your medical provider, and you might or might not be able to get a hold of them at that point. Um, I noticed that the biggest opponent of these rules has been Epic, which is a Wisconsin-based electronic health record firm that's the biggest in the industry. I think they're still the biggest. Um, Epic CEO Judy Faulkner said she was worried about patient data getting sold if it's too easily available. Competitors say Epic is just trying to protect its own market share. Um, (laughs) Is there really a day coming where people will be able to, like, merge all of this information? We actually spent uh, a day at Epic a couple of years ago um, because they insist that they're interoperable. And finally, they answered the question of how they're interoperable is that they can send a PDF, which I think is not what interoperable actually means. I think that's just operable. (laughs) Well, so if you think about the business incentives of any of these medical records company, they have no reason to want it to be easy to take the data that they have put in their system and transfer it to another provider. And that, I think, is especially true if you are the dominant uh, company in this market, because what you want to do is you want to convince the next hospital down the street, well, if you buy our system, it can talk to everyone else's, and if you don't, then it can't. So I think Epic has a business interest in uh, opposing this kind of rule that would make their special advantage of having the most market share less valuable and would allow other medical records companies an easier time entering the market and competing with them. On the other hand, I do think that the uh, concern that they're raising is a legitimate one, which is, you know, these companies have spent a lot of time thinking about what the law is about medical privacy and building in a lot of protection, some of them very onerous and annoying, so that records aren't kind of leaking about and people's medical privacy is protected. And they are right that whatever iPhone app uh, you may download your medical records into isn't going to be bound by those same rules and, in fact, may have its own business interest in aggregating that data and selling it and using it to figure out what kinds of ads to serve you or other things. And, you know, we've seen a similar problem in the wellness industry. So, you know, all of these employer plans that, you know, give you extra bonus points for exercising or whatever, like the data about how much you're exercising or whatever you're telling those companies is not bound by HIPAA. And there has been really good reporting um, at Kaiser Health News and elsewhere about the vendors that, you know, collect this data and sell it to other people and use it for all kinds of commercial purposes. So when you just look at the tech companies that are working on developing apps toward this end, I think uh, Apple is working on something. Google is working on something, and then you also have health insurers. I think United Health is working on an app as well. But with the you know a lot of the concerns we already have with the big tech companies having our information could become really pointed if we're thinking about them having information from our most recent doctor's appointment. There's a downside to all of this. All right. Well, one more thing. Um, We had news out of Super Tuesday that we didn't get to last week. Maine voters had a chance to opine on a new state law aimed at making it harder for parents to opt their children out of vaccines for 
philosophic or religious reasons. And despite a pretty active campaign by anti-vaxxers, voters backed keeping the law in place, and it was not close. Those voting to keep the law outpaced opponents by almost three to one. At least that was the last I saw. Um, Now, this vote came right as fears about COVID-19 were starting to rise. Um, Are we maybe going to see a bounce in people again who believe that vaccines are a good thing? I hope so. Um, well, you know, and I and it wasn't just around COVID nineteen. You know, there was a big measles outbreak. Um, and There's a whooping cough outbreak, I think, also in Maine. Wasn't oh, there? really? Yeah. Wow, wow. Okay, yeah, but nationally, and so I think that's getting a lot more attention. You know, there were a lot of states that had exemptions for like religious reasons, but I'm not sure what religions even have rules. There are some. There are a few. Okay, so um, so you're seeing some of that close up. Uh, you know, especially with kids going to school and all of that. It's it's you know, and so they're trying to. Um, you know, obviously we don't have a vaccine yet for the coronavirus, but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, it's interesting too when you look at the states that have actually banned the religious exemptions. It's, I think Maine, it becomes the fifth or the sixth state. I think you're right. Um, but it's been some red states and some blue states. I mean, so it's California and New York. That's not like terribly surprising, especially when you consider the outbreaks. Some of the, were in California and California tends to be more like active anyway on that front. But like Although California has a lot of anti-vaxxers. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's a good point. Mississippi, though, and West Virginia, West Virginia I think, yeah. were two others. So and they have really good adherence. <laughs> they have mm-hmm. among yeah, the, the highest adherence. The economics literature on this is quite interesting because, you know, a lot of us have been talking for years about how hard it is to convince people who are against vaccination that it is safe, that they ought to vaccinate their children. And there have been all these studies about different methods of persuasion, different public health messages, ways doctors should talk to their patients, pamphlets, et cetera. None of that seems to have a very big effect. But the evidence is that if you change the law and you make it much harder for parents to send their kids to school if they don't vaccinate them, it actually does bring adherence way up because, you know, there are, of course, is going to be like a core of people who are really militant about this and who will homeschool or do whatever they have to do uh, to get around it. But the kind of marginal person who like has some vaccine concerns but still wants their kids to access a public school is going to vaccinate if they have to. I know most people. If you weigh like kid going to school versus getting a vaccine, they're probably <laughs> going to go probably going to go toward the school route. So, yeah. all right. Well, that is the news we have time for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org/slash What the Health. Margo, why don't you go first? So I just wanted to come back to coronavirus and uh, recommend a story by Yasha Munk at The Atlantic called Cancel Everything, which, um, first of all, I just think is just a really lovely title um, that I wish I had thought of writing writing myself. Um, But also, I feel that this piece really explained to me for the first time why it is so important to engage in these quote-unquote social distancing measures. It really looked at what has happened in Italy and what the consequences have been, not just of the virus spreading, but of it spreading really fast and too fast for the medical system to be able to accommodate all of the really sick people. And it just talked about how we need to all share responsibility for preventing those kinds of catastrophic consequences from happening here. And it means, uh, you know, big changes uh, to the way that we live our lives. People who can work from home should work from home. We should not be going to concerts. We should not be going to conferences. We should not be flying if we don't need to. And it's really this call to cancel everything to to really uh, cement some of these big social changes uh, right now before this virus gets much worse. Kimberly. 
Uh, I picked a piece piece from Mother Jones that almost went under the radar, I think, just because we're also focused on uh, coronavirus news. But Mother Jones had been following um, the use of electric shock devices in a school in Massachusetts. So now uh, the title of the article is Schools Can No Longer Use Electric Shock Devices on Students, uh, the FDA said. And um, it's by Rest Choma. And it looks at how, um, you know, this is a controversial therapy that was used for on, on students who have mental um, disabilities. And it's not widely used, but it was still something that was practiced at this one school. And I'd actually seen a lot of protesters outside of HHS and outside of uh, Scott Gottlieb's home when he's FDA commissioner um, to put an end to this. So it has happened. Page. And to bring it back to coronavirus, um, because of course, um, uh, this great piece by our colleague Joanne Cannon at Politico entitled How Testing Failures Allowed Coronavirus to Sweep the U.S. and is a really interesting look actually back at the end of January when the World Health Organization had actually developed a test and was offering it to companies and a decision was made by our government not to make use of that test. And so Joanne kind of looks at kind of how that happened. I guess we're still unclear on who actually made the decision that we weren't going to use that test and develop our own instead. And then kind of the ramifications now to where in most other countries, they've been able to test thousands and thousands of people. We still have only tested a handful of people by comparison and we're what, in the middle of March. Um, This is now almost two months after that WHO test was initially available. So really interesting read right there. It is. Well, my story is from the New York Times uh, by our sometime podcast panelist, Sarah Cliff and Kwaktrung Bui, is that how you pronounce mm-hmm. it? Thank you, Marco. It's called Strikes and Attack Ads, The Hard Roads to Universal Healthcare. It's about how while it is true that most other countries have universal coverage and the U.S. does not, those countries had their own prolonged fights to get there. Something I learned from reading this story, Australia actually passed a universal coverage program, then repealed it, then passed another one. Uh, like most other things, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. At Sanger Katz. At Leonard KL. At PW underscore Cunningham. We will be back in your feed next week with a special episode marking the 10th anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. In the meantime, be healthy.